Good morning. It's good to have you here. My name is Dan McDonald. I am one of the pastors uh, at our church, and we are continuing our series in the book of Exodus. We, uh, last week, we're still doing the Ten Commandments, the second half. We're skipping 12 chapters and about 40 days in the history of Israel uh, to Exodus 32. If you are new here, we reflect upon the Scriptures every week. We've been looking at the book of Exodus. Rima, come on up. And this morning, we'll be reading from Exodus chapter 32, and here to help us with that reading, Rima. Today's Scripture reading is from the book of Exodus, chapters 32, verses 1 to 14. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses... The man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with great with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we're nearing the finish line of our look at the book of Exodus. We have seen the unfolding narrative of the people of God under the kind, faithful, and gracious protection and provision of a holy God through the tabernacle and sacrifices, through the, the deliverances and miracles. Last week we were at Mount Sinai, 
the people of God had entered into that marriage covenant to be His people, to be His bride. That was the Ten Commandments of chapter 20. Today in chapter 32, Moses is still on the mountain with God. He has been there for a few days. Chapters 20 to 32 are God's instructions to His covenant people to understand this solemn marriage covenant that He is making with the people of Israel. We have instructions on how to worship God. We have instructions, that's, verses, that's chapters 24 to 31. Before that, chapters 20 to 23, instructions on how to live lives of justice and equity. And now we come to this passage where we come to a great reveal, a reveal of the essential problem that will plague the marriage between God and humanity for the rest of history and indeed has plagued us from all eternity, and that is this. The problem, men and women, is us, you and me. Look no further to find the root of evil in this world, men and women. Take out your phone. Flip on your camera app. Flip it so it's looking at you, and you will see the problem between you and God. It is us. This passage is like an ancient version of this app. It shines a mirror on the problem, a mirror for us to see ourselves not on the outside, but as we really are inside, in our hearts and souls. This passage reveals an enduring dynamic between God and His people. I'm going to unfold it in three ways. We're going to look at the problem with people then the paradox of God, and finally the power of grace. The problem with people, the paradox of God, and the power of grace. The problem with people. We'll set the scene a little more. God spoke to Israel. He'd given them the ten words, the ten commandments. His voice sounded like thunder, and He terrified Israel. He literally scared them to their bones. They agreed to obey the ten words and then said to Moses, you go talk to Him. We'll stay here. So Moses went up to finish the covenant commitment relationship with God to get the stipulations that take from chapters 20 to 31, and He was up there more than 40 days. And the people, it says, got impatient. They have no idea that they will be wandering in the wilderness for 40 more years. From their perspective right now, they want to move this along already. They left Egypt. They left the slavery of Egypt. But their experience with God in the wilderness so far, frankly, has been nerve-wracking. There's been no obvious food or water supply for hundreds of thousands of them, save the intervention of God to supply it daily. They just escaped annihilation from the Egyptian army by passing through the waters of a sea and watching it and worrying and wondering if it would fall back upon them. They want an end to this, being vulnerable. They want an end to the wilderness. They want homes and farms and predictable, safe, lives. They want schedules they can control, pleasure they can pursue, just like we do. Isn't that just like you and me? We want our predictable schedules. We want our producible pleasures. 
We want control of our lives. We don't like being in the vulnerable wilderness of trusting God. And so they go to Aaron and they say, Moses has been up there a long time. We don't even know if this fellow, I love the way they've now mocked the man who led them out of slavery, this fellow. We don't even know if he's coming back. Make us gods that we can worship and that will protect us. They don't even mention the God who they have seen protect and provide for them. And Aaron, that courageous leader, not. What does he do? Oh, uh, give me your gold. Actually, the words literally tear off the gold from your ears and give it to me and I will make an idol for you. Might be a passive-aggressive attempt, some scholars think, by Aaron to make the cost high enough that they'll decide to stop, but he's not willing to confront them. This is a classic case of what happens when people wander from God. They want their own pleasures, they want their own comfort, they want their own control, and they have leaders who are afraid to confront them with God. So let's probe what's really going on here. Let's look at what began this, where it ends up, to help us understand the meat of this story. What started this? Impatience. Moses had been gone a long time. You and I understand impatience. We live in the most impatient culture in the history of the world. Technology has made everything come so fast, we're not used to waiting. But what is impatience, actually? At the root of it, Impatience is the desire to control the pace of the progress of things. It's a desire to control your life. You want to go through the less exciting, more boring, or more dangerous parts and get to the good stuff. That's what impatience is. You want to control events. I know that because that is me. It has been me for many years. It has been my great struggle and it is most of ours. Who has been controlling the event so far? God. He has delivered them from death multiple times, shown Himself glorious multiple times, brought them peace, provision, protection, and now offers them Himself as their bridegroom. And they go, no, I'd prefer control. Thank you very much. Now let's look at where it ended up. It ends up with this festival, Aaron calls a festival, where they give offerings to this golden calf that has been created by the gold that has been melted down and fashioned. And they say, behold the gods. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Israel. And then it says, they got up to play. What does that mean? In the Hebrew, it's a little bit Fudgy. The word to play can, you, can mean to laugh. But it also can mean sexual caressing, as in Genesis 29. It can also mean revelry and drunkenness. The connotation here is that this festival, with drinking and partying and much laughter and frivolous activity, possibly sexual activity, this sounds more like a rave. This sounds more like Burning Man than a worship service. 
It's a shocking deviation from every other encounter of God that we have seen so far. It's vastly different from the provisions that God had said how He's to be worshipped in chapters 21, 20 to 31. The contrast is shocking. But if you are an original reader and you are reading this, you're going, it's kind of familiar too. Because these are the kinds of festivals that attended the religious services for the other gods of the day. It looks just like the nations around them. It began with impatience. It ends with a rave. Now let us look at the middle. In the middle there is a golden calf that is meant to represent the God of the universe who said, make no idols before me and worship none of them. Command number two, I will have no other gods before my face. Command number one, and they stick it right in his face. From the gold that had been given them by the Egyptians when they left Egypt, from the wealth God had created for them, they fashion a God of their own making, and they call it gods, plural. Why? We're not sure why the plural is there except to say again to an original reader that would make sense because all the other nations had multiple gods. The Jews seemed to want to fit into the culture that surrounded them in the way they called God gods and the way they held the festival and went out to play. So let's put this all together. At the root that begins this is impatience, a desire for control. The fruit is a rave-like party that looks just like the rest of the culture. And in the middle is the fashioning of a false god that is called God's to resemble the gods of the other nations. Men and women, this is you and me. Wanting control, we take the God who is and we shrink Him, reshape Him, reconfigure Him in our minds and in our expressions so He fits what we want to see happen in our lives. And He allows us to fit into the culture we happen to inhabit. And so, when we get the opportunity, our temptation and our heart will always move towards the remaking and refashioning of the true God into a God of our own making. Not a God we submit to, but a God we use to get what we want. John Calvin said, man's mind is like a store of idolatry, so much so that if a man believes his own mind, it is certain he will forsake the true God and forge some idol in his own brain. Tim Keller said, an idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what actually only God can give. Anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly feel like it's worth living. And if you don't think that's you, and you don't like Tim or John, listen to James. James 4.1, what causes division and quarrels amongst you? He's talking to Christians. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. 
This is the problem with people. We're idol makers. We're God reshapers. Implications. If you're here and you're investigating Christianity, I want you to reflect for a moment on your own journey of spiritual discovery. This is what I have discovered talking to skeptics, seekers, and observers for well over 20 years here. First, you want to find God reasonable to you intellectually. Then you want to find God reasonable to your values, the presuppositions and ethics that you bring to the table. You're coming to God to make sure God fits into what you deem acceptable before you will decide whether you will know Him. Who's in control of this spiritual journey? Whose values are, gui- are guiding this journey of discovery? They are yours. That is a dead end. If you are here and you are investigating the gospel and God and Jesus, you are going to have to say, I will come to you on whatever terms exist in reality. If you exist and you are God, I must come to you on yours. If you really exist, I have to put aside my own ethics. It's not about whether you are reasonable to me, but whether I could be acceptable to you. That is your final question. If you are here and you are a Christian, you need to recognize the you that you should see in this passage. This is us, constantly reshaping the God who is into the God whom we want to be. Our end goal may not be fun and revelry. We may have other idols that we seek and make central. It may be our careers, our resumes, our relationships, but it's that something that haunts your daydreams and shades your decisions, and you want control of your life to pursue it. That is your heart. The first step in going deeper into the gospel is looking with reality into this image of yourself and realizing in my heart is a desire to reshape God to meet my own ends. Confess that darkness. And then secondly, learn to cleanse your heart continually. You will need to. Idols will grow in your heart. They may change over time. As you get older, pleasure starts to fade power starts to rise. Respect and influence start to come on the horizon. But idols, they all are. Guard your heart. This is the problem with people. We make idols relentlessly, naturally, instinctively. Second, though, is the paradox of God. Let's look at the next paragraph and how the Lord responds. He says, go down for your people whom you've brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly. They've made for themselves a golden calf. They've sacrificed to it. And he said, they are stiff-necked people. Notice how God responds. Firstly, notice this. God is up on the mountain. They are down below the mountain, but he sees all of it. Everything you do, everything you think, everything you hope no one else knows, Everything you'd be ashamed of, even to admit fully to yourself, He knows fully. Secondly, He knows truly. He knows the root. You may want to evade responsibility and justify why you want this career, this car, this partner, but He knows the real reasons. 
God says to Moses, they have quickly turned aside. They have corrupted themselves. He precisely points out both their impatience and their corruption. He sees the connotation, the hunger for control that was in them and us all along. And then he says, I've seen this people. Behold, it is a stiff-necked people. This is his judgment. To be stiff-necked then is to be some kind of animal with reins or a rope that is fighting against the restraints, refusing to listen to the human who is trying to guide them. It is an obstinate, recalcitrant stubbornness. God sees all. He knows truly. And finally, He says, let me respond rightly. Leave me alone that my wrath may pour out upon these people. Men and women, this is the paradox of God. He's declaring the just result that we deserve for our great act of spiritual adultery that has been done. You have to realize, Moses is up finishing the marriage ceremony, as it were, and his people are off committing adultery in the middle of the marriage ceremony. Think about, you haven't even gotten to your honeymoon, and your bride or your husband is committing adultery. This is shocking. But let's reflect on this, leave me alone, because scholars have noticed he didn't need to say that. He could have said, now go while I do this. In saying, leave me alone, he was actually bringing into Moses' mind the idea of not leaving him alone, of interceding, which is exactly as we're about to find out what Moses does. Here's the paradox of God. God promises to destroy them. But then he also says, look what he says, that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I might make a great nation out of you. My wrath needs to be poured out. Judgment needs to come on these guilty people. But I have some promises I have made to make a great nation out of the people of Israel. This is the paradox of God. He's heavily responsive to our deeds and relentlessly committed to His prior promises. He's the aggrieved bridegroom who wants to divorce his wife and the bridegroom in love with his wife who wants to make her a great bride. He is relentlessly, infinitely holy, but he wants to be infinitely loving to the same people who are completely abandoning him. Implications. Men and women, please, don't ever make this argument before God. Well, I've been good. I haven't hurt anybody. Has Israel hurt anybody by making a golden calf out of their gold and then having a party? They all seem to be enjoying themselves. When you meet God, you will meet a holy God who will not ask you, have you hurt anybody? He will say, what have you done with me? For it is me that you have to do with. Have you treated me well? I hear this all the time from people in Toronto. I've been good. I, I haven't hurt anybody. That isn't the test. That isn't the standard. That isn't the grade. What have you done with me? Have you followed me? Or have you taken control and become your own God, running your own life? 
fashioning your own spirituality to allow you to do what you want to do. Second implication. You feel, I hope, from my description, this tension between God's holiness and wrath on wrong and His love and kindness and faithfulness and desire to bless. There's a tension here. God's not fitting into our nice little categories. And I have to say, this is difficult for churches. You will notice if you've ever been to other churches or any churches, the churches struggle with these two sides of God. They're bipolar in feel. Churches, even whole denominations, tend to move to one side. I believe in a holy, wrathful God, and they feel like angry churches. And churches, I just feel like a love, kind God, and they forget about the holiness. It's really hard for you in your mind, and it's really hard for churches in their conduct, their teaching, and their behavior to hold these two together. We like simple boxes, easy truths, memes and cliches over the stupendous, infinitely complex God who's perfectly holy and infinitely loving at the same time. He is so above us that the heavens cannot contain Him, and yet He's willing to somehow take upon Himself human flesh and become one of us. How do you put those two together? I don't know. But I have to, because that's the God who is. That is why, men and women, it's so important to read and study the whole of the Scriptures of God, because in the whole is the whole of all the perspectives and emphases and characters and attributes of God robustly shown. Don't read part. Read the whole. Secondly, don't try and reduce God to anything other than the fullness of who He is. Don't make a golden calf in your mind out of the fullness of God. He is at the same time, men and women, the most terrifying, holy, awesome, and fearful being in the universe because of His holy hatred for my sin and the most loving, forgiving, patient, kind, self-sacrificing God I could ever imagine. All of that at the same time, all the time, everywhere, in every situation. Finally, as a church, we need to guard our view of the God we worship. We need to guard what we teach so that this bipolar, infinitely complex God in all of His glorious infiniteness is taught. But we need to worship that way too. The nature of worship matters to God. Men and women, you come here and you listen to and participate in worship, but some of us get into the habit of saying, oh, I enjoyed that worship, as if you were the audience for that worship. You are not the audience that we are trying to get to enjoy. God is. He is the only audience in a worship service that matters. The way we participate matters. These people up here are not performing for us. They are inviting us to worship and bless Him. They are like, if you've ever been to a really nice restaurant and you're meeting someone, you can't wait to meet them and you get there. I was invited to this really nice restaurant to meet people and someone met me at the door and just took me to the table. I have no idea who it was. I can't remember if it was male or female. I remember the meeting. 
I remember the restaurant and I remember the people. I have no idea who brought me because it wasn't that their whole job was simply to bring me there. This people, my job is simply to bring you into the presence of God that you may worship Him. Worship leaders, don't worry if you missed a note because the notes God's listening to are not the notes of your voice or your piano, but the notes of the heart of all of us who are here. What notes are our hearts singing to Him? Preachers, who cares what people think of my sermons or yours? What God thinks of your sermon is what matters. There is one audience. Men and women, make this time your time to have an audience with Him not your time to enjoy a product from us. Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite old-time preacher, canceled the music at his services and started having a guy get up and play a tuning fork to start the key, and then the congregation only sang, and they asked him, why did he do that? He said, because too many people are coming to my church because I've become a celebrity, and they're coming to consume services. And so I have taken the musicianship out that we may remember who we are trying to please. I quote him now, our father is to be regarded as a king And in prayer and worship we come, not only to our Father's feet, but also to the throne of the great monarch of the universe. The mercy seat is a throne, we must never forget this. He is the highest of all monarchs, He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Emperors are but shadows of our King's imperial power. The stars are not pure in His sight, how much less man who is a worm, says Job 25. With what humility should we draw near to Him? Familiarity there may be, but let it not be without hallowedness. Boldness there should be, but let it not be impertinent. You are still on earth. He is in heaven. You are still like a worm of the dust, and He is the everlasting. Before the mountains were brought forth, He was God, and if all things should pass away, yet He would remain the same. This is the God we worship. Keep the paradox of His holiness and His love. Keep them infinitely alive in your mind. Then how do they come together? They come together in our third point, the power of grace. In our third paragraph, Moses picks up on the hint and intercedes to the Lord. He doesn't try to excuse the actions of Israel, by the way. That is crucial. He comes with no blame shifting or gaslighting. He just comes. God will have no part of lies and untruth. But what Moses does is fascinating because Moses leans on two what he thinks are persuasive arguments to God. Firstly, he pleads God's passion for his own glory. Secondly, he pleads God's promises to his beloved people. Firstly, God's passion for his glory. He says, look what he says here. It's, it's just crazy. 
He says, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he, God, bring them out to kill them on the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Moses knows that God cares not just for Israel, but he cares about his reputation amongst the Egyptians who are the imperial powers of the world. Men and women, God has a desire that is as intense as His anger against our sin, and that is His passion, that His love, His kindness, His goodness, His glory would be spread to the ends of the earth. Isaiah 43, verse 6, God says, I will say to the north, give them up, and I will say to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone called by my name whom I created for my glory. We're all the ends of the earth, meant to hear the goodness and the kindness of God. Moses knows that. He understands that the people of God, we are meant to be the light of God to the darkness of this world. The people of God are meant to be ambassadors for God to the farthest corners and nations of the earth. The people of God are meant to be the blessing of God in a sin-cursed culture. The people of God are meant to be the shalom of God to a weary and worn-out world, and aren't we so? We need God's shalom. Men and women, you and I have a mission so outstanding, so astounding, so absorbing, so exalted that it beats any promotion and any job that you will ever have. You are emissaries if you are a Christian, lights, ambassadors from God to a world broken by sin, sorrowful from evil, weary and tired and looking for hope. Christians, God wants us to give hope to this world, and Moses pleads that enduring truth about God to God. And then he pleads God's own promises, his covenant promises, his bridegroom promises back to God. Remember Abraham, remember Isaac, remember your servants, whom you swore by yourself and said, I will multiply your offspring, and I promised I will give them an offspring, and they will inherit together. Remember, God, you promised your people. You still love them. Moses is saying to God, I know you have every right to judge, but I also know you love. Can you find a way to forgive? And God does. He relents because God is not just a God of holiness, We're a God of love, but He puts those two together and allows them to be woven together by grace because God relents and absorbs the cost of their sin upon Himself. That is the power, men and women, of grace. And we, all of us, each of us, needs that power to allow God to come into our lives and to absorb our wrong. And of course, thousands of years later, God would show the final fulfillment of this great truth, of the power of grace, because He would send another mediator to His people. He would send His beloved Son. Jesus Christ would come down from heaven, would assume human flesh, human nature, would walk with us, live with us, love us, show us the light of God's holy love in Him. And we would see Him, and we would see God, and we would hate Him and reject Him. Because the God we saw in Jesus was not the God we wanted to follow. Too holy, too loving, too self-sacrificial. 
too vulnerable, too humble. We did not want the weight of having to follow that. We did not want the cost of being that kind of person. We wanted control, comfort, pleasure, power. And so we nailed Jesus to a cross. Jewish religious leaders conspiring with Roman authorities put him on a cross, hung him there. And on that cross, God's Son said this about those people. Forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And then he said, it is finished, and bled out and died. And in his death, he paid the debt to satisfy God's holiness against our sin by giving up his life and spending his blood, his infinitely precious blood, to pay our moral debt to a holy God, that grace may come and bring holiness and love together. Men and women, here is the power and the paradox of God's grace to us. Its name is Jesus. His name is Jesus, the Son of God. God showed us the infinite nature of our sin and wrong to Him by saying your sin is so infinitely wrong, the only way to pay that infinite debt is to send my infinitely holy Son to absorb the infinitude of that debt and pay it with the infinite price of His blood. God showed us the infinite nature not only of the debt but His love by saying I'll give up my beloved Son to make you my son and my daughter. I'll absorb it all. And the infinitude of God's holiness and the infinitude of God's love come together in the infinitude of the grace poured out in the blood of Jesus for you and for me. You come to Him only that way. Those are the terms that God says you can come. You come that way. Holy, undeserving, holy, unconditionally loved, holy, undeservingly paid for by the precious death of Jesus Christ. But God demonstrates His own love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. It is Advent. Advent means arrival. This is the season when we celebrate the arrival into human history of God Himself through His mediator, His Son, Jesus Christ, who will go from a cradle to a cross and buy your freedom and purchase your forgiveness. Matthew 1, verse 20. But after he had considered this, Joseph did, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Let us pray. Father, I thank you that though we are idol-making control freaks who want to live lives of autonomy from you and shape you into the image that makes us happy, we are also forgiven children by the blood of your Son. Help us to take the staggering truth of your holiness, your love, and your grace and put them all together and see in this season the glorious dawn of grace 
for your people because of your love and help us to worship you rightly. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I think we have time for about half a question. <laughs> a quarter of a question. Um, okay, let's go with this one. Uh, you presented a tension between people who say, I am a good person versus the statement, what have you done for God? Isn't one of the very things we do uh, for God is, sorry, isn't one of the things we do for God being good? Uh, we worship God by following the teachings of Christ uh, with so much of it being a life of love and goodness. Yes. So you have rightly pointed out that there is a difference between your good works as a resume to make God accept you and your good works as a response to God's free grace. The questioner has in mind that exact difference, and if I didn't explain it well enough, I will do so now. Your good works will never make a resume good enough for you to accept Him. By the works of the law, none shall be saved. But your good works as a response to His grace are exactly the way we are the light of the world. Great question. So now let's go to the table of God's grace. No, let's not do that. <laughs> let's respond in song to the God of grace. Thank you, worship team, for so quickly visually reminding me. Please stand for our song of response. <laughs> 